Some are short. Payers trying to differentiate themselves by working with provider organizations or not. Today, I speak with Dr. Jacob Asher. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This summer short is about the dynamic between payers and providers. An opening point that Dr. Jacob Asher, my guest today, makes in the interview that follows is that for a payer, it's super hard to competitively differentiate from both a cost and or a quality perspective when you and all of your payer competition uses the exact same PPO networks. I mean... (laughs) What are these same exact doctors going to somehow do a better job with your members than with the rest of their patients? This is even more true if you think about this from a physician or a practice point of view. Will clinical teams in their clinical workflow figure out who your members are, first of all, which is a thing, and then switch up what they choose to do for your members that is special? Even theoretically, that sounds like an executional fandango, which is exacerbated in markets with lots of payers. I guess I am not shocked when I hear stories like Dr. Asher was talking about. Doctor sits down at desk after a long day and sees 27 dear doctor letters from all of the payers in his or her payer mix. Hey, doc, let me tell you about our amazing new thing. And doc's like, Pajama time awaits and boom, the letters unopened right in the recycle bin. From a payer standpoint, back to square one, I guess. Now, I will chuck in the mix here, and this has nothing to do with the conversation with Dr. Asher that follows. But one thing I've spent my entire career doing is helping organizations set up programs to collaborate with other organizations. If I authentically solve an actual, authentic, prioritized problem, I usually can find many people who seem pretty pleased to work with me. Now, is this easy to do? No. (laughs) It takes strategic thinking and executional competence and or grit to see it through. You really have to understand and account for vested interests and all the weird perverse incentives. Personally, I got to work with a whole team of others coming at this from all different directions to untie this Gordian knot. But anyone who really wants to or needs to reach across the aisle and engage with other stakeholders or customers even in any sort of systemic way, it's just it's not possible to phone it in. Anyway, I just want everyone to succeed in working together. It is impossible to have a longitudinal patient journey if everybody is all up in their own silos, fragmenting care. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. I think that is a paradox that the non-Kaiser industry bangs its head against regularly. It was a frequent business initiative to try and differentiate the quality or customer or member experience, to partner with specific providers to do something unique that could be marketed as a benefit to the sales item. Everybody's using the same exact physicians in the same exact hospitals. So it might be difficult to differentiate. Nobody can really get a leg up because all of the, like the PPO network is largely the same. I don't disagree with what you said. The reality is providers who are contracted with multiple health plans don't have a financial incentive to do something uniquely different for one health plan over another. And even if they did operationally, it's they're going to they're going to have to know which, which of their patients has which insurance 
all the time, which is simply not practical. Yeah. And this does not address the point that you're making, which is that from a payer standpoint, you want members of your plan to be treated differently in a provider organization so that you can competitively differentiate from other payers. But I have heard any number of times that unless that 40% is the tipping point for exactly the reasons that you just said, 40% of patients in a specific program or in a specific plan, because if you hit that 40% number, then it makes sense for the provider organization to do that for everybody. If you're under that, then the financials don't kind of work out. So then the provider organization just really can't do it. They do not want different pathways for different plans, which is a catch-22 if you're the plan, because then you don't get any differentiation. It's, it's not just, it's more like I'm a hospital or I'm a physician group or an IPA or I'm an individual physician in an office seeing patients. It's, you're appropriately focused on the patient and on the care being delivered. To say that you're going to somehow have something, a unique pathway that's radically different than your normal mode of practice, assuming you're a good evidence-based practicing doctor or hospital, it just it, I don't quite understand how you customize your workflows in a way that doesn't make the delivery of care even more complicated than it already is. Let me just dig in there. I'm assuming you're, we're talking about something wherein there actually is a clinical pathway, right? And for a lot of conditions, there is. Why would the carrier, like the special carrier plan, be different than that clinical guideline and therefore so radically different from what they should be doing anyway, probably, that like it would cause an operational challenge? No, I think that's a fair statement. There are minor differences often in coverage policy between health plans that I can't explain based on well-intentioned clinical teams looking at evidence and coming up with medical policies. But by and large, you're right. Yeah, the standards of care and coverage, broadly speaking, particularly after essential benefits were established, aren't really differentiators in clinical practice. And therefore, the ability to deliver a unique, distinctive Cigna clinical experience versus an Anthem clinical experience versus a United clinical experience, even though Dr. Jones could have contracts with all three, is just just challenging. Dr. Jones is going to is practicing to the best of their ability and trying to get reimbursement for their services via the contracts they sign and trying to be compliant with policies and procedures of each health plan to make sure they get paid appropriately and services are covered. And you just have a great deal of trouble in an open network or with, a, you know, with folks who, who are paid by multiple health plans getting a, an experience that you can differentiate, in, in my experience. Yeah, and I could see, as I'm thinking through my question and also riffing off what you just said, I could see that if I'm a doctor, and there actually is a standard of care, where the differences could come into play, and I'm not saying this as a positive particularly, is the MRI going to get approved? Is the PT, like what is the next step? Is it an MRI or is it PT? And some plans might have thoughts on that, right? So like you could get yourself in trouble if you tried to standardize and then everyone's getting denied for the whatever. And then also we have all the PBM goings on, right? This drug is approved even though it's not a generic and there is a generic, right? So the doctor prescribes the generic and it's not on formulary, just like all kinds of weird stuff there. So maybe they don't want to get necessarily lost in that sauce and they have their minimum, the minimum viable, like whatever care plan because it's most likely to get approved by everybody. Yeah. So of course, there's probably all kinds of weird exceptions. And particularly in the fee-for-service world, don't forget, if I'm a PCP, a primary care physician, and I know that I should prescribe this generic, but my patient has seen an ad for something on TV, and do I want to spend 20 minutes going through the reasons why that brand name drug is no better than the less expensive drug, 
when I have a waiting room full of people and, and I'm trying to make my ends meet here. And really, it doesn't change my compensation at all if they get the higher price drug. That's someone else's issue. And outside of a capitated, globally capitated system, you're, the financial incentives aren't aligned. You're just, it's a challenge. Back to our theme here about payers trying to get physicians and provider organizations to work with them so that they can differentiate themselves in the market or slow cost trends or improve quality or both, or make some money in venture capital. Many of them are obviously rolling out point solutions or care navigation services that they're enrolling maybe members in directly also. You have this whole emerging world of the telemedicine vendors and add-on vendors with apps and digital engagement and may offer greater ability to get folks to address chronic diseases than the traditional health plan-driven programs have been. People to do the care management, the pop health. It was always, I would ask physicians, are you aware that my health plan has this and this? And they would point to a pile of paper on their desk and say, I got eight, eight health plans with 27 different programs. So I I, good to know. But I don't have, how am I going to get the patient into it easily? These kinds of workflows. And there, there's improvement on that. And But the challenge has been engagement to get folks into the programs. When you say there's improvement on that, what do you mean? I think the plans have gotten more sophisticated and have worked on making the user experience and the telephone experience better and partnering, particularly with larger employees, with HR benefit teams to reinforce the message that your health plan benefits include this and this. And if you want help with your smoking, your diabetes, your obesity, your mental health, your depression, this is all covered. And here's this wonderful apps available or there are dedicated teams standing by ready to work with you and your doctor or your therapist to coordinate your care for complicated illnesses. I think that they invested a great deal in that. And I don't have the numbers, but I sense it's slowly improving. There just may be a chronic issue where the plans are not seen as an ally and more is just as the transactional service. They're continually trying to work on that to either partner with providers, to co-label services under the provider sometimes, and has been done to increase engagement. The ACO movement has tried to make health plan services more available to the providers and to increase enrollment and engagement in available services. So we have carriers and they're trying to improve the quality for a whole bunch of different reasons, which may be circularly related to cost or improving market share or whatever their other elements are here. But we do have the confounding issue. As you just said, a patient gets a letter in the mail from the carrier. It's not like they eagerly open it up. Plans, as you just said, are not necessarily regarded as a trusted ally, whereas providers a lot of times are, but then you've got the plans are reaching out to providers and there's 17 letters sitting on someone's desk and they're just like, I don't know, this is too complicated and I can't keep track of all this stuff. So this co-branding with providers that you talked about, it sounds like maybe that would go a little bit better because it's the plan reaching out with some offer that the provider organization can't refuse and they get their name on it and there's more benefits to the provider, it sounds like. What have you seen there that's working and why? It was one of the aspirations of the accountable care partnerships that you would have, particularly at Cigna, we had dedicated population health folks partnering with the population health team on the provider side to try and essentially co-manage and and not have duplicative targeting of folks for reminders. So they're not getting three different letters about their that they're due for a colonoscopy screening or something. And these were baby steps, but they were in the right direction. I was surprised that the provider groups 
didn't seem interested in offloading any of their population health resource demands to the health plan teams, at least as far as I was aware, but there may be potential for that. It tends to be that the providers want to, the bigger ones in California at least, which usually have built infrastructure on their HMO business for population health, want to use their own resources to improve this experience. So I think it's, I don't have a lot of data for you, exactly how much more penetration there is, but I think there's much better communication. And then I would assume that the plans are doing much better. Direct marketing kind of stuff and open enrollments and health fairs at larger employers and working with internal HR teams at employers to promulgate value-added programs to increase engagement. So, I mean, probably you have the provider organizations that it, it goes back, you know, why won't they offload Pop Health? I can think of a couple of reasons why. Number one, exactly like we were talking about earlier, they could have six different payers. So, you know, it's offloading one sixth of their Pop Health. If you're running that Pop Health department, you don't want to give away one sixth of your reason for existing. So right. it could be that. It could be they're worried about steerage and steering, right? There could be a bunch of stuff at play here. If we're talking about carriers' ability to improve the quality of the care, you said we just talked about partnering with provider organizations, partnering with ACOs, accountable care organizations, co-branding as another way for payers to work better with providers and offer up an offer they can't refuse. You said direct marketing and probably getting, they're probably getting better at that. You were saying going to health fairs and working with employers to help them improve their ability to engage employees, which it's shocking sometimes how not good employers <laughs> are at that. But you'd think it would be in a carrier's best interest to try to work with their employer customers to level that up. So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. Sometimes people don't do that because they have subscribed on iTunes or Spotify and or we're friends on LinkedIn. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps, just apprising you of the options that are available. Thanks so much for listening.